Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. So which of the painted peacocks is on Mr. Bingo? Well, he's on the right, and on the left is his sister. And the person with the quizzical brow? That is his good friend, Mr. Darcy. It's <gasps> miserable, poor soul. Miserable he may be, but poor he most certainly is not. Tell me. Ten thousand a year, and he earns half of Derbyshire. The miserable half. <laughs> Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled and contain in-depth discussions of the plots, characters, and themes. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. And this is our review of Pride and Prejudice, starring Kira Knightley, Matthew McFadden, Brenda Blethlin, Donald Sutherland, Rosamund Pike, and Dame Judi Dench. Directed by Joe Wright, released in 2005 on a budget of $28 million, grossed over $121 million at the box office, garnered several Academy Award nominations, and was part of a big movement of period piece romance films that was coming out in the you know, early and middle 2000s. So, and I get why we talked about bridesmaids I and mean, we've done romantic comedies. It was time to do a more modern one. We did this, but why this? Well, first off, this is not in my, hold on. Let me go back. First of all, this is not a typical movie. I would like, I'm not typically into the period pieces. I like stuff that's kind of mindless. I like romantic comedies, but, you know, I like them to be a little more modern and stuff. But even though this is set in the Victorian era, era this this has modern symbolism. This is a modern romance. It just happens to be set in the 19th century, in my opinion, because I think the themes and everything speak to... A, speak to a modern romance versus versus when it is set. It is ahead of its time, so to speak. That is interesting that you mentioned that because I had no connection whatsoever to this story. I've never seen this other than to see the Oscar clips of it. I never read any of this. I didn't know anybody that had seen. I knew nothing, nothing about this at all. And I will spoil it now. I don't know that I understood four-fifths of the dialogue that's on in this film. And it's a lot of exposition and dialogue. But it looks gorgeous, and you can still follow the through line. I mean, it's uh, there's only a couple of movies I've ever seen where I don't understand anything anyone is saying, but I can just I, I'm there. Well, I was going to say, cinematography on this is really good. And I... And- as y'all, as everybody knows, I don't really get real artsy. You know, I'm a little more mainstream. I don't go for very independent films, and I believe this this was out of the um, independent. I think this was out of the. I think this was sort of an independent film, or it's out of the art. You know, the it's an art house film, definitely. But anyway. 
Yeah, it's Focus Features. It's not not a main, you know, not a big studio. It's the offshoot studio of Universal. So it's their smaller, like you'd say, more. So wouldn't it be like stuff. Miramax to Disney? Yeah, and that's a decent comparison. Or, or yeah, Searchlight to Fo- Fox. It's more like Searchlight to Fox. That's what I would say. Yeah. Okay, but so I don't really go for the art 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 house films and you're not going to hear me talk about oh cinematography and the score but honestly in this movie that was done to me was done so well and granted the acting is very good we've you know we've got donald sutherland we've got judy dench kira knightley um i mean the acting was very top notch as well, but like you said, the cinematography just and you could it it worked with the movie. You could follow the movie, not understand a word they say, like you said, and it just followed the movie and the score followed the movie just perfectly. And it's one of the few movies where I pick up on that. Yeah, it is. It is a beautifully shot, well directed score, well directed film. Joe Wright does doesn't do a ton of films, but when he does these things, they turn out to be really lavish scenes. And I mean, it's shot entirely in England, so it's gorgeous. You know, I, I don't know. I just think that there's there's a real yeah, there's a different way to shoot period pieces. You can do period pieces one of two ways. You can either make them feel like stage plays with a little bit better budget, or you can make films that have a, a heavy amount of dialogue, but the scenery works with the dialogue and works with the moods and accents the moods and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I really think that that's part of what works here. I mean, he and Roman Osen, who's his cinematographer on this, did a beautiful job of capturing the English countryside. I've never been to Europe, but when I imagine going to it and going to the countryside, this is what I imagine it might still look like, or at least what it would have looked like in the 19th century. Well, and also if you watch the bonus features on this is one of the things they did, but they made the cast do before shooting or the director did is that they went into this house that, I mean, they're all in their modern clothes and they're all, they're all kind of like he sent them into this house and they're kind of like playing like they were kids or like <laughs> sisters or something. And I mean, it's just, it's in the English countryside. It's this old farmhouse and it might've been the one they were shooting at, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And they, they just went in and kind of bonded is that was the whole point that they would play, you know, silly games like hide and seek, stuff like that. And they went in and the whole cast just and they just kind of bonded. And that was the whole point of the exercise to kind of get them to bond and build this like well, sisterly bond. Well, yeah, you have these families. essentially. That's the whole story here. And we, we can get into a little bit more of that when we start talking about the characters in the film. But I think there may be a good number of our audience that may have heard of this film and haven't seen it like me or maybe haven't seen it, it in a long time. So and it's it, very under the radar. It's very low-key. It is, very much. And so because of that, I think we do need to do a plot summary. So I'm going to jump in and do this one real quick, and then we'll get into the film. The Bennets are the parents of five daughters near the close of the 18th century and the dawn of the 19th century. 
And well short of rich, though not exactly poor, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett are looking for suitable husbands for their daughters. They're encouraged uh, when they learn that an eligible young bachelor from a wealthy family named Charles Bingley and his sister has moved to a nearby state along with his egocentric best friend, Mr. Darcy. Eager to see if a match can be made, the Bennetts bring their daughters, Elizabeth, played by Kira Knightley, and Jane, played by Rosamund Pike, to the ball to uh, meet the new neighbor and see if there's love in the air. Jane takes to Charles, and he appears to feel the same way, but Elizabeth dislikes Darcy, who seems very disinterested as well. And while Elizabeth becomes infatuated with a military man, Lieutenant Wickham, and finds herself courted by a well-meaning but drab man of the cloth, William Collins, fate causes Elizabeth and Darcy to frequently cause paths. And while they don't care for each other, they can't stop thinking and talking about each other incessantly. And eventually, after time and missed opportunities, Jane finally accepts Charles' marriage for a uh, proposal for marriage, and Elizabeth and Darcy finally admit the attraction, respect, and love they have for one another. And that's about the simplest way I can sum up what happens without just going into plot after plot after plot after plot on this thing. Because it goes may- on a long time. May- maybe a good plot summary would be it's Downton Abbey without the servants and two more two more daughters <laughs> in a hundred years prior. <laughs> we got to talk about the whole setup here because this is from a time that no longer exists in our culture and really hasn't existed in our lifetime, Anna. You know, and we, we we come from really the more traditionalist part of the country. We both grew up in the South, so there's still some of this. Your parents, you know, push you towards some people and some of that, but there's no arranged marriages. There's none of this stuff. But I, people growing up, like they're older than me, that talked about, well, they just sent that girl off to school to marry her off, or parents talking about trying to marry off the daughters. You know, and yeah. that seems to be Donald Sutherland's entire concern in life. It's to just get these women out of his house. Well, another thing we need to take into consideration, like I said, like Downton Abbey, which seems to be the whole point of that stupid show, is which it's not stupid. My mom watches it. She's kind of got me hooked, but I don't want to admit it. Um, is that they're trying to marry off the daughters? They have their women. The uh, and it's kind of the same thing in this. Women in Downton Abbey, they're rich, but women cannot inherit money. In England, apparently, in whenever in the early 20th century, it's the same thing here. They're wanting to. It, apparently, it's a curse to have a daughter yes. any time before like 1920. <laughs> so apparently, it's a curse to have a daughter, and in some countries, it's still a curse to have a daughter, and it's probably the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. Apparently, um, <laughs> speaking from the person who has two daughters, I was about to say you are in that boat. Here's the thing about about this: the the whole setup is funny. Is that Mr. Bennett, played by Donald Sutherland, and I want to tell you, I have seen Donald Sutherland phone it in on so many performances late in his life. And this is nice to see him where he actually seems to care about what he's doing for once, because this is really good for him. But his concern is, I want to marry them off to somebody good, but I'm just more concerned that the person's not a complete jerk and not a loser. He actually cares that they're happy. I mean, you get that a little bit later on with Elizabeth and some of the other stuff that goes on with her. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the mom is concerned about, if you oh, marry that she, one, we are not going to have anything. She's like, the best thing I can describe and you probably know as well as I do, you know, like those crazy cheerleader moms or something that like are or, exactly. or like major ed or dance moms or something and always pushing 
their daughter like they've always we had one family at my high school and they had like they had like five four daughters three or four daughters and one one son and like all the daughters were cheerleaders yeah you know it's it's kind of like that it's like that kind of stage mom and she is like pushing them to be the the bells of the ball so to speak and trying she just her sole purpose in life is to get them married off not only married off but married off well and what they're really pinning their hopes on and this is what we have to say is that they they know elizabeth is too much of a smart mouth too independent too self-willed her mother says you're just good this is an old maid in training you know she just knows and she knows the rest of her daughters are really just plain and not very special but that jane is the beautiful one. So if we can get Jane married off to somebody who's really wealthy, the rest of us are going to be okay. Now you talk about putting pressure on your kids. When you hear about that nowadays, right? It's like, well, we want the smart one to go and get an engineering degree so you can take care of the rest of us because the one that likes to draw on the wall and eat crap, we're not expected to do a lot for us. So it's the same kind of trope. And I think it goes to what you said before. There's a lot of modern sensibilities in something that was written hundreds of years ago. And it's amazing to see that play out because even though I have no relation to any of this, have no reason to relate to these people within five minutes, you totally get what's going on on screen because it's all about how beautiful Jane is and how much of a smart ass Elizabeth is. And please don't let her screw it up for everybody else. I know. And I, 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 I love that because like I said, it translates today you know how how many you i mean and i hate to say it but i have two daughters and i'm i am i am guilty of doing the same thing though i'm I'm trying i swear my old my seven-year-old wouldn't if i could marry her off now i think she'd be like so excited (laughs) but i guess she has anyway that's a whole other story for another day but she's she's got all these little boys she's always talking about she got one leaving her notes all the time and i'm like (laughs) already I'm like, so she, I get, but I see myself thinking like, like she is, she's a very, my seven year old's very carried. And I, I catch myself saying stuff like to my husband, like, yeah, she's the one I want taking care of us when I'm old. You know, I want her to take care of us. Like my other one's just straight, like she was at the playground the other day and she's just in her own little world playing in the sandbox. And this little boy came over and he's like, you want you know we're doing something really fun over there she's like no i'm fine it just went back to <laughs> playing her sandbox and she's kind of like elizabeth she, and, uh, yeah. she's kinda, you know she's like no i'm fine over here i'm just gonna play in my sand because i don't want to play with y'all and just and he i mean poor kid hangs his little head and has to go back to his friends but I mean, where my other one would be like, oh, yeah, why don't we do this? And why don't we do that? And blah, 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 blah. Just be all into it. She's like, no, I'm fine. I'm just going to do that. So I see myself kind of doing that with the girls as it is. And it's hard not to. I think the thing with these characters, too, to follow them and the way you like them is that not only is that Elizabeth's parents uh, sort of summation of her character, but it's also her own. Like she sort of owns that about herself. 
that she's just not going to really try hard and doesn't care. And, and that's, that's her whole bit. And her, and her best friend is her sister, Jane, who also knows that about her, but also in spite of being incredibly beautiful. And she is Rosamund Pike is beautiful. She's not much of an actress, but she's gorgeous to look at. She plays it. So, um, I don't know. She, she's really self-conscious about it. Like she doesn't know how pretty she is. It, or maybe she, she doesn't. It scares her. I don't know. I think you're right. It does, and it scares her because you learn she's very shy, and that yeah. was one of the issues that they when when she she met Mr. Bingley, they hit it off, and then his sister kind of was like, "Well, we didn't think she was really she was really into it, you know," and or Mr. I think Mr. Darcy told that to Elizabeth, and. Elizabeth goes, but she's shy. She's shy. And I think she, what's so funny is, you know, Elizabeth's like this old, like you said, this old maid in training and she's owning it. You know, she owns it. And Jane is so beautiful, but she can't own that for some reason. She just can't own that. But that's also the the attraction, and that's the thing you get from Bingley the first time you see him hop on the screen and and what he does in, in as his character. Uh, because the thing about him that that gets me is that he plays it just as shy. You know, the uh, I don't know Simon Woods from anything else, but yeah, I, he was in Rome. Okay, see, I, he was I, in Rome for the last <laughs> few episodes. He played the old. The older version of Augustus Caesar. Okay. You know what? The only thing I do, I should know him from. Well, no, take that back. He wasn't in that. I'm, I'm mixing. He's, so in I, a, uh, he's, he's always has these bit parts. Yeah. He's, and stuff. I've seen him in a couple of other things, and I, it takes but, me a while to figure out who. And I'm like, oh, that's Mr. Bingley. But, you know, he he it plays it just as shy. So you have the two shy, very good-looking people finally thrown together. And instead of doing the standard romantic comedy trope where they both date the jerks and can't find each other, they are smitten with each other. They just can't seem to get together because they're both so shy about it the whole time. But they, I, they, they have the sweet love story. Because and I, yeah. I think it you see how kind of and I love, love, love the character of his of Mr. Bingley's sister. And uh, I love it. And I think, and um, Kelly Riley plays her Car Caroline Bingley. Yeah. And I love the way she plays it. I, I just like her look, just her look is so, she, I think she, she's a very beautiful actress. I have to say that, first of all. It you know, I had this whole flashback with her because I don't know her. She's from in anything. Sherlock Holmes. Well, I I didn't remember that. You know what I remembered her from most recently? I saw her in Flight, which is an amazing performance that she gives oh, in that film. The the Denzel Washington, the Robert Denzel Zemeckis. Washington. Yeah, okay. she is amazing in that. And I was sitting there going like, I know this woman because there's not a lot of redheaded actresses that make an impression. You know, yeah. there's there's Kate Mara, Jessica Chastain, and her are kind of the only ones I know. And Reba McIntyre, who you will never see in a period piece so about anything in 18th century england and i i just recognized her face and i was like oh i get it she plays this I, i've kind of seen her and everything i've seen her and she plays this really on the outside strong beautiful you know confident woman but on the inside she's a complete wreck and is a mess and she's really insecure and her own insecurity 
causes her to drive a wedge between her brother and Jane because she's the one that insists they move away. And that prolongs the whole story. Yes, and I just, I love the way she tells them, like, really, Charles, like, he's so excited. You could just see how excited he is. And, you know, Mrs. Bennett is all sure there's going to be a wedding after the, you know, after the whole big, huge ball. And, um, and he's like so excited and he's waving goodbye and, uh, to Jane and her family. And his sister just looks at him like, really, Charles, Re- really, you're going to marry her. And I just think, and she just, you know, takes control of the, she's strong and takes control of the situation, but she's trying to kind of mask her insecurities. In another world, she would have been one of the mean sisters that Cinder- stepsisters of Cinderella. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's definitely yeah, hundred years is. prior to Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> which, See, which is which the, is a hundred years prior to Downton Abbey, which, which is a hundred years prior to today. Which is the fact that you know all of that is amazing because I didn't even know that. But but that's who she is. Like she comes from that same line of people, and that's why those characters work. On the flip side, we've got to talk about Darcy Matthew McFadden. Mm-hmm. I don't know him from anything else either except this, but I will say this. If you're going to get somebody to play opposite of Kira Knight's kind of spunky, you know, alt girl personality, you know, Kira Knightley is sort of the modern day Winona Ryder without the theft issues <laughs> and, and, and some of that stuff. I mean, she really plays those kind of characters. She's the, she's held up to Gen Y the way the Gen Xers we hold up, um, uh, Winona Ryder, she plays the same characters. If you're going to have somebody that can bounce off of that, you had to get someone that could play high comedy with a very straight face. Because everything he says is absolutely hilarious to me because he's so disaffected by all of it. He's so yeah. done with it. He is like Ethan Hawke, but British. <laughs> and it's hilarious. Well, it's like I was just thinking in the, all these scenes, it's like he's so. It's he's so much more mature that even though they're like the same age, it just seems like he's so much more mature than the Bingleys. And then most of the Bennett girls, I'll kind of exclude Elizabeth from that. It just seems like he's so mature and he's I don't know if it's if it's because of his backstory and stuff, but well, that's what I was gonna say. Or that, if he's just a reserved person, because as the movie goes on, you he opens up more and more, and you see that he really truly cares about people. But he, it's like he's got this real. I'm trying to think of someone. I, I and it's I hate I hate as all this stuff I'm talking about Downton Abbey and stuff. He's kind of like Jace on Duck Dynasty. He says all this stupid stuff with a straight, straight face, you know, about like, you know, he, he he's like looking, da- he is like Jace he, on Duck Dynasty. Well, he he comes looking down, making these sarcastic comments with a dry wit and nobody's is, really getting them. Nobody's really getting them, but the audience, like the characters is, in there aren't getting it. He is the epitome of the Carl Jung thinking type personality, super objective, divorces himself of all of his emotions to make decisions, sometimes come off cold and condescending, even when he doesn't appear to, who deep down inside 
wants to be loved, romanced, and caressed just like everyone else. But, and I think you've hit on it, because of how he has to do things, because he has to grow up quicker than the rest of them, because he is so responsible as a person, he's put on that facade so long, he's put on that, you know, that forward strength, that front that it's become easier for him to play it that way than to care about, I don't care about dancing. It's a waste of time. I don't care about women. I'm not interested in this. I'm just, I want to do business, you know, and that's all he cares about until he meets another woman who also cares as little about him as he tries to care about the rest of the world. And I think that's their attraction to each other, particularly his attraction to her is that he never thought he'd meet another woman that was that strong willed, not in that era. And I, I agree, and it's like um, people have, men have told me in the past that I'm friends with or that I've dated, or even like my husband has said. Um, and I've re- and I read an article online a long time ago is that men think they want a yes woman, but what they really want is a challenge. They just don't realize it. And I think that's that's the key here. He wanted a challenge. So typical women of that era did not challenge him, except maybe uh, someone like Elizabeth. I, I think it's exactly right. It, she is an extreme challenge to him. And, and he, he's the type of man who wants uh, who wants a challenge. And there exactly. And and thus why when she accuses him falsely of stealing somebody's wealth and all this stuff, he goes out of his way to explain to her how wrong she is. And it's almost the way he does it, though, isn't condescending. It's he explains it to her and said, I really feel sorry for you because now you're just like me. You're going to go shut yourself away from me when really what I want you to do is to cry and jump into my arms. But I know telling you this is going to destroy you because you're so bullheaded like me that this is it's going to wreck you. And so I, I totally dug his performance of all the performances here. His by far was the most interesting one to watch. And I understood very little about what he was saying. Again, I didn't catch all of it, but I liked the way he delivered everything and his, his whole face. I mean, he did so much with his face. <clears throat> yes, it was. You know? kind of, yeah. And at the beginning, I agree it, it, at the beginning, it's kind of like these, you know, these eye rolls and stuff like, oh, my God, these stupid kids are dancing again. You know, you kind of get that attitude from him. And uh, I don't like balls. You know, they're making me, you know, like like grand balls. They're like making me dress up. This is I hate having to. You know, there's some people um, that just aren't social that don't like to talk to people don't like to make small talk right stuff like that and that's how he came across at the beginning but as the movie goes on you learn that he's just like we said he's just reserved and i love that there were little touches that you you know and i think a lot of movies today i mean i'm saying a lot of modern movies, sex sales. This isn't, you know, this isn't the Victorian era when you looked at their ankles, you had to marry a woman. <laughs> but, you know, sex sales, we dress skimpy. I, I get I get it. It's a different day and age. But, but what worked in this are these little touches like when, you know, Jane is sick and she's at the Bingley's and they're taking care of her because her mom her mom orchestrated this whole thing and made her walk in the rain to the family so she would get so she would get sick so she would have to stay there and in turn grow closer to mr bingley and stuff and then you know elizabeth has to come 
to kind of stay with her and watch her. And I think, I think um, his, his sister, I interpreted his sister kind of, kind of like, she wasn't too fond of Jane, but I think she kind of thought Elizabeth was kind of, you know, like the funny, crazy spinster aunt you have. Right. Yeah. She's I the fun she kinda, one. Yeah. yeah. I think she kind of got that. And then of course, Mr. Darcy's there working. Right. And let's yeah. talk about why the other men that are in Elizabeth's life and come and go in her life don't work for her. First off, you have Mr. Collins, the incredibly nervous, incredibly shy. Which her mother tried to marry her off to. Right. Try, you know, soon to be a preacher. You know, he doesn't have a lot, but he's got a little and he's a good man. And, you know, he'll never mistreat her as, you know, as much as the, that era of, you know, preachers would mistreat people and you know he seems to be real nice and he his whole thing is it's almost like a spiritual business transaction i need a good strong wife to be able to preach about marriage and church you know and and as a southerner growing up and having friends who aspired to work as ministers i remember these conversations you know i've got to pick someone that'll be a good preacher's wife and i'm like hey man just pick a good wife (laughs) but you know beside that his whole bit is is there i think for one reason and it's to show us that it's not just getting the match of the personalities that's going to work. Because like we said, Jane and Charles are both really shy people and they work together like that. This guy would never work with Elizabeth. Opposites in this case cannot attract. You well, get why he's into her, but she has no reason to care about him. And does she, she? Yeah, you're right. She does it. She makes it blatantly clear. She makes it blatantly clear. But, but the line of the thing, the, the Donald Sutherland steals the whole thing. He said, you're going to lose one of your parents today because if you don't marry this man, your mother will never talk to you. And if you do, I never will. Yes, <laughs> I love that. that fantastic. It's like, that was the greatest dad line of all oh, time. Yeah, and her mother's like, her face is just like... It's just this, oh, you're shocked. <laughs> but I thought that was great. And her point is like, this poor woman, and I mean, I don't agree with the methods, but she has spent, devoted her life to marrying these girls off. That is her job. Like, I go right. to work every day and sit at my desk. She has, pl- I mean, she has plotted. She has scheduled. She has, her life is revolved around marrying these girls off. And and, 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 and then one of them Donald just... Sutherland's like, I, I don't want you to marry, you know, he comes in like, yeah, I don't care what your mom says. I don't want you to marry him. He's an idiot. You know, exactly. Like this will not work. This is not good for you. And you know, that's the thing you, you, we want to go back and in our revisionist history minds, we go, Oh, what a, what a barbaric age. What a terrible time. But, you know what? No, there were. I mean, this was this was not out of nowhere. Yeah, Jane Austen didn't just dream this stuff up. This was stuff no, she saw yeah. every day, and that's what makes it so real. Is because you can see that happening now. You could play that same scene in a movie with, you know, the, the latest Disney stars, and it would still work today. You know, the latest Disney stars and Jason Bateman's the dad. You know, I mean, that would totally work. Yeah, let's put a. De- uh, It'd be good. Debbie Ryan. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's put, let's let's put, put her, Debbie Ryan and um I'm uh, trying to think of one of the one of the, the nerdy kids off of the uh uh even Steven show or whatever. Oh, oh no, we're 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 way past that. Jesse. Yeah, we're way past him. <laughs> but what I was saying about the little touches is like when they're leaving to go home after Jane is sick, you he he helps Elizabeth into the buggy or car a horse or carriage or whatever you want to call it. And 
he helps her and holds her hand and she, he you, she notices him you know you know rubbing his hand or holding his hand and she notices that and it's and then you know it goes till he she's you know Mr. Collins winds up marrying her best friend Charlotte and and who is plainer than Elizabeth at yeah. that point. And, um, and more desperate, it should be said. You're yeah, and it's so it. funny. Is Elizabeth goes to visit them because he's gotten this parish that apparently um, Ju- the Judy Dench, who played um, Lady Catherine, has bestowed or, be- or bestowed upon them with all her fun, all her funds, all her money. And um, he's got this parish. He's got this nice little little parish and this nice little house and this congregation and a nice little wife like he wanted and he and elizabeth comes to visit and they're making tea or something and she's like basically shoes him out of the room she's like this like, is the one room that he can't come in yeah she was like we'll be <laughs> kind of like we'll be safe in here because this is the one room he cannot come in and it, she's just basically like now now run along dear we're doing girl stuff and he's like okay well, he, just, you know he is, he comes off though as the biggest nerd ever because he's just standing oh, yeah. there opining about his garden and i, I always wanted to find garden. and the two women are like hey, okay we're gonna go over here now i mean it's really weird to watch him do that but then he doesn't get like mad about it he's like okay He's just happy to be married. And then the whole bit, though, is that they wind up somehow or another next door to the Bingleys and Darcy again, right? That's the whole bit. They're going over to – because Catherine's their aunt. Yeah. Well, uh, yes. Or something. Yes. Apparently, um, Mr. Mr. Darcy is related to Lady Catherine. Lady Catherine has this whole dinner where it is mentioned again, (laughs) kind of like like – five daughters she says something like five she she's talking to elizabeth is like five daughters and no governess five daughters you know you know and this and none of y'all and all of y'all are over all of you are uh, uh, y'all because apparently she was in the <laughs> yeah. all of you are, not, are over 20 <laughs> And she's going on, and and Elizabeth is just kind of like biting her tongue, like, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. And every once in a while gets a smart, elegant kind of little jab in there. We have to talk about it, though, too, because that's Judy Dench, who's only in like three scenes and totally steals the show. (laughs) Wasn't she nominated like. Or maybe I'm thinking of Shakespeare in Love. Never mind. She yeah. was nominated for that, was only, only had like so many lines or something. Yeah. It's amazing what she got out of this role having only been in it for such a small amount of time she does so much with this because the thing about judy dench is and i don't i've never known her to not walk on the screen and command attention and respect it's something about her it's why she was so good as the character m for the bond series yes. when she played that because she just commands respect with the way she does things the way she looks and all that and she scared everyone on the screen and I have no proof of this at all but I wonder if it's like they talk about acting with Meryl Streep when she walks on the set everyone just sort of goes and just kind of holds their breath and just waits for her to do her thing if she doesn't still hold that kind of respect particularly among this group of uh, great you know United Kingdom actors and actresses well, and a lot of them are not, you know, are not well, well known. Huh. You know, Keira Knightley is the most, is the most well known. 
of them. And, and was she known that much in 2005? I mean, do yeah, because she had done the um, she was halfway yep. doing the se- she was halfway through the second Pirates movie. Okay, so the Pirates, the first Pirates movie had already happened. Yeah, in 2000, That's- she was actually filming Domino. If you look on the trivia on IMDb, oh, okay, all of uh, most of her hair is hair extensions because she was filming Domino while she was filming this. And she had it all cut off. That makes sense. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So if you look at some of her hair, like some of it, I kind of, when I read that and I went back and watched it, I'm kind of like trying to figure out which is a hair extension and which is real hair. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, she, well, she is the one that everyone would have noticed. I mean, clearly they made this for her, right? Yeah. But in the process, they surrounded her with other people that play well off of her. And Judy Dench and her, I mean, I can imagine if she keeps at it and will work, you know, in that realm, Kira Knightley will wind up playing the same kind of roles Judy Dench now plays. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> she can just has that way about her. She, she does. Kira Knightley will never, and it's one reason why she kind of worked in the Pirates movies is she, she is never going to play like she's, she's tough, but not like action movie tough. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? I mean, I know she did Domino. I know she, yeah, but even that, that performance, I mean, that person, Domino Harvey was a different person than she's not your standard issue action anti-hero. She's either. not Angelina Jolie. No, no, no. She's, she's not, not going to be too, Laura Croft. No, no. She's never going to be that. She's going to be, again, I go back to Winona Ryder because in her best stuff, this is what Winona Ryder could do. Play this confident, strong, yet incredibly misunderstood and often, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Where you don't take somebody as seriously as you should. Um, uh, underestimated. Yeah, an often underestimated female character. I I always see Kira Knightley kind of play in that. I mean, heck, she did that awful King Arthur movie where she was Guinevere and she was riding around on a horse with you know CGI breast implants and arrows and all that stuff flying around. But it was the same thing. You know, she plays the same thing over and over, and she's really good at it. And I, I get the same thing off of her here. Yeah, and she she does the and she does these she's very versatile and she can do period pieces well. I think. I think Oh, Kira, and she's is yeah. made to do period pieces. I think that, so too. Yeah. That, right. that is her bread and butter. I think now if she has a part in Love Actually. If um if you've um she has she's has of course everybody has a everybody if you're British and you weren't in Harry Potter, you have a part in Love Actually, apparently. And um, she um, has a, she has a part in Love Actually, and she does a and it's it's one of the one of the most modern things. It's when I th- when I think of something modern she's done that's not a period piece, the first thing that comes to my mind is her performance in Love Actually, and it was before Pirate. It was before Pirates got really big. I know she filmed it before Pirates, and oh yeah, I forgot she did Bend It Like Beckham. I forgot about that. That that's the the thing I remember her for. Because <clears throat> I remember seeing that before she was anybody, you know. Yeah. And I just thought this is a real interesting kind of spunky character 
you know, our actress here, and she just keeps playing that again and again. And it's what makes it work because that's why you can put her on screen with a heavyweight like Judy Dench. It's the, it's about the only thing that really works about the uh, Devil Wears Prada is that they found two people that could actually play against Meryl Streep and do okay. Emily Blunt and Anne Hathaway can act, mm-hmm. and they and they both really did a good job in that film. And in the same light. Keira Knightley does great here against Judy Dench. And it's all for the farce, though, is that she thinks Darcy is this awful person because he ruined her current infatuated man's life, Lieutenant Wickham, you know, who got cheated out of his inheritance. And he's just a lowly military man. And as we foot soldier, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He's a lowly foot soldier. But as we come to find out is that he actually is a compulsive gambler and Darcy cut him off for his own good before he ruined the whole family. And now yes, what a didn't twist. Didn't he try to like mar- try to marry Darcy's sister? That's what I thought. Yeah. She's he's like yeah. 14. Yeah, he, he tried, tried to, to ask that. for her hand in marriage. She's like, she's somewhere around like 15, somewhere between 14 and 16 or 17. Right. And, he's and way he, older. Yeah. He tried to, and he's like dark. He's like maybe a little bit. Yeah. He's like, you know, as she was saying, like, I think about early twenties, he's close to close to Elizabeth's age. Right, but he's, and, he's Darcy's age at least because he talks about how Darcy it was his father's favorite son who wasn't even his son. And as we come to find out, it's because Darcy's not an idiot. Yes. And he's, um, it, yes. And he's not, as you said, he's not an idiot. And he saw Wickham for what he was, that he was trying, you know, right. he was trying to, he was trying to swindle some money out of the family. And so Darcy being the good, responsible young adult that he was, cut him off. Exactly. He's the one, but he had to make the hard decision. Yeah. And it's that peeling back the old onion layer on Darcy lets you realize is that this is a man who Elizabeth is sort of has this hard outer shell because she's chosen to have it. Well, Darcy has one because of the circumstances and the things that he's been forced to do. And that that's a different approach for both of them to have that same character trait. And it's what makes you start to, well, it made me start to like him more and start to turn on Elizabeth. Like, don't be an idiot. <laughs> well, uh, as we were saying, where we think Darcy wanted a challenge and women of that era typically wouldn't have been a challenge for him. I do think that unlike other men, yes, she was infatuated with Wickham and stuff, but I think she's fascinating. I wouldn't necessarily say he's a challenge for Elizabeth, but I do think she's fascinated by him, that he he keeps her interest. And that is right. something that you would have to do to be with Elizabeth. And I think as the movie goes on, we learn that someone like Wickham would never keep Yes, she was infatuated with them, and maybe right now it sounds like a good idea. And ha- haven't we all been there, even in this day and age? Right. But she is not. But she is actually fascinated with. She's intrigued by by Darcy. Right, and that's why she can't stop talking about him or thinking about him or going out of her way to not see him, but see yeah. him. You know that she keeps lurking around him, and the whole time he is smitten with her and yes. you're starting to see it and it finally comes out that she finally admits to her sister that you know this is 
I know that I've kind of passed on that, but I'm going to regret that because he was would have been worth it, you know. And that's sort of the crux of it. And all that happens after Charles and Jane finally get together. I was so waiting for that to happen. I just wanted that to happen sooner. And it was such a sweet moment when it did. But I was like, we milked that for everything it was worth to finally get those two lovebirds together. They did, and they had to, like, Jane had to go to London for a little while, and then we, and then her sister ran off and with, um, ran off her, her two sisters, which, um, who were Kitty and Lydia, the two younger girls. Yeah. They, they, apparently, Lydia was kind of the little slut of the family, apparently, (laughs) and they paraphrase, or they use the euphemism flirt. Yeah, I mean, and you and I didn't, and I was, as I was saying, I didn't realize at the time, but um, Kitty was played by Carrie Mulligan, right? And I I didn't realize, I didn't put, I didn't put that together when I saw Wall Street, and I didn't put that together when I saw the trailer for The Great Gatsby. But (laughs) um, she was, but you know, Kitty's always kind of following her. It's like, it's like. Like Lydia was the bad, not the bad, was the instigator and the troublemaker, the bad kid, and Kitty just kind of followed followed her. They were kind of like the younger bad version of Jane and <laughs> Elizabeth. And yeah. Elizabeth, yeah, they really were, but they weren't nearly as well. We don't know as much about them, but they weren't nearly as good at their characters as or doing those things as their older sisters and isn't that always that way though in big families like you see traits from people but it's like the remake it's uh, it's okay but it's the fourth or fifth nightmare on elm street i kind of know it is it's not as good as the other one maybe it's okay in spurts that's those two girls yeah and they just and like they just kind of go like all these dances and these balls they go to they just kind of like they're flirting, they're giggling, they're kind of drunk. You know, they're they're like your younger sister that joined a sorority at college. You know, and she's going, right. you know, where you actually you might have joined, but you might have you actually might have worked and made good grades, and like they joined this sorority and they're just there to party and get <laughs> drunk and meet a whole bunch of guys. They, they are what we would call nowadays majoring in MRS. You know, yeah. they, are, they are there for one thing only. As where Elizabeth and Jane are interested in that, and they want that, but they want other things, too. They talk about it. They go at length to talk about being educated and well-read women and all, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's this, it's all those same tropes. But And they're just, I mean, and they're just, and so, I mean, Lydia just runs off, and they're all scared she's going to get knocked up or something because she's so, so kind of flirty. And I use that with quotation marks. She's so flirty and they're scared to death. She's going to get knocked up. And then uh, uh, Darcy fixes that for Elizabeth to show he cares about her. He kind of buys off Wickham and is like, oh, yeah, well, you will marry her. And here, here's here's some money to prove you will marry her. So begrudgingly, yeah. Wickham marries her and. Her mother is ecstatic. Exactly. And then it all finally comes out where Elizabeth and Darcy finally have to come to grips with what they feel about each other and what they think. And I, you know, I waited for that and I knew it was going to happen because you just see it coming from a mile away. And I thought, I hope this doesn't play as cheesy as the billions of things that have copied it since. Cause I realize now what I'm watching is every romantic comedy trope ever <laughs> when it was created. 
So not in 2005, but when it was written, you know, the hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And I'm watching this and I'm going, okay, just please don't we're, let this be obvious. And you we're know watching the skeleton of every romantic <laughs> comedy ever, ever created. We are. And I realized something that even though I knew where it was going and how it was coming, I think it's in the two performances in the scene that could be very obvious for a modern audience. That could just be so throwaway that they really sell it and you buy it. And I like it when they can basically walk off into the sunset together. I, I thought that was a fabulous, very uplifting way to end something that is it by no fault of its own has been played out over centuries, but yet when presented right still works. Well, I, I agree. I loved the, and Oh, it's another bit of trivia that was, um, I think on IMDb is that, uh, Matthew McFadden wears contact lenses, and for some reason he did not have them in that morning, or they were messing up. And I work, I've worn contact lenses for almost 20 years now, so I know how I know how it feels. <laughs> there, you know how it's in this field, and he's walking toward her. He couldn't see her to walk toward. Her. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I thought that was really funny. Apparently, he I, and I have really bad eyesight as well. Apparently, has really bad eyesight. And for some reason, he couldn't put his contacts in that morning and he couldn't wear glasses because of the character so he's walking like blind to go see her and he couldn't see so i thought that was really interesting but um i i, I really like that scene and and i mean it's it's like i've said over and over again yes it's not blatantly physical like we see in romantic comedies and movies today but I don't know. The director did such a good job of them. I don't understand how he could, how these characters hardly ever touched, but yet you could just feel the sexual tension and you could just feel the sexual tension and it just between them and just be at, and it's absolutely some of the rom most romantic Stuff and I'm not a romantic by any stretch of imagination. I, I will put my husband on and he will he will verify this. <laughs> I'm cynical. I I'm not a romantic. Um, I guess maybe I relate to someone like Elizabeth or Mr. Darcy because I'm usually like I don't have time for that. I don't. I this this is just too much. But they just do such a good job through their body language or through the direction or the cinematography that i i mean it's, it's all it's all of it and i i think the the trick that helps it is the music is fascinating the shots are beautiful mm -hmm. and the actors in their faces and in their eyes convey all of that magnetism attraction and like you said sexual tension that you usually would need jessica bill to jump all over bradley cooper to get well they don't have to do that because no, they can do it in the point. dialogue, and it's all in that rich, beautiful language and in the emotion that it's conveyed in. It's what makes these kind of things work. Hell, it's why we still watch and they do these remakes of these Shakespeare movies all the time and stuff. The language and the emotions in those is better than any effect or any any kind of uh, you know modern aesthetic that you can give it. Because in the end, it's about those people coming to grips with what they're too afraid to admit. Because that's what all of us want to do in real romance is being able to admit to somebody else how vulnerable you are and they admit it right back to you. That's the most, you know, physically, emotionally charging thing that you can ever get out of a person. 
And I, I agree. I agree with that. And oh shoot, I forgot what I was gonna say. Dang it. Um, well, I don't know. I, we're, we're getting some Doctor Ruth shit here now, so I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, before we we go, I would like to get since we've been talking about it, I I would like to give one more kudo to Matthew McFadden because as we've said, I thought I haven't seen the 1995 like BBC or A and E Prime Prejudice with Colin Firth, who who apparently was the most amazing Mr. Darcy ever, because people still talk about that, even though I've never I've never seen it. But um which kind of led to his role in the Bridget Jones movies uh, as Mark Darcy. But um which which she based the character on this, but that's a long story. But anyway, um I for him to come and give such a good performance and to kind of make you think to and to man up to that when Colin Firth has been known to have this just great performance or whatever. I think that's I think that says a lot. I think it's it's great that well, here's the thing. You're always going to have to live up to something when you do one of these things that's been produced many, many times. You know, I mean, you, you dropped it a minute ago, Great Gatsby. There, Boz Lerman's remade that, and it's coming out in May with Leonardo DiCaprio and Carrie Mulligan, and I think Toby Maguire's in it. And yes. I, I mean, I will always hold up the Robert Redford version forever because I think it's an amazing film, and I, I love that book in any way. But it takes special actors to take on those roles and try to do new things with them. And, and it's all, it's not always the big mega stars that can pull it off. It's usually people like this who do a role or two that is very memorable over their career. And then the rest of their career is summed up as, Oh yeah, he was good in everything I saw him in. And you can't remember it because he's so transparent. You just see it over and over. And I think that's the beauty of his performance. He may never be the global mega star that Colin Firth is or that Kieran Knightley is, but this performance will last. I don't know that you'll ever have a better one after his. If Colin First is amazing and I haven't seen it either, then I can't imagine anyone following this and doing it any better than what Matthew McFadden did. Oh, yeah. He did a, real, a really good job. And Kira Knightley, everybody. The only one I would say that, I mean, you said Donald Sutherland, Judy Dench. Everybody, I mean, the only one that I think was the weakest link in the acting was Jenna Malone as Lydia. That's because she's just not any good. But that, that's that's another story for another day. Her yeah. best role was when she, you know, Julia Roberts taught her how to curse out some boy and stepmom. That was about the height of her career, as far as I'm concerned. See, this was 2005. She was in Saved right before this cold mouth. That's what it was. I was like, yeah. she was pregnant in it. I yeah. Was like, pregnant in it she was in saved okay yeah so that's an okay film that kind of plays out a little long but well we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts recommendations and popcorn ratings so what are yours for 2005's pride and prejudice i mean i think this is an amazing remake it is something that is not in my wheelhouse typically it um i'm not into period pieces I'm not into these overly romant romanticized. I won't call it romantic. It's more romanticized movies, but it, it proves how well of a writer Jane Austen was, and how how far above, how far ahead of her time she was. Because this can be applied to modern day life, to modern day situations, and I think this is 
a gr- for this generation, I think this is a great. I think every generation should have this movie some in some way, shape, or form. And I think for this generation, this is a great remake. So I give it an extra large popcorn all the way. This is not my thing either. I don't. If I'm going to watch period pieces, it's not this period. I can assure you. And I don't do overly romantic films, though I do like good rom coms and good love stories every now and then. This one though is just good on every level. There's something here for everyone. And like I said, I didn't understand most of what was even being said, but I didn't have to because the performances are great. The humor is there. It's gorgeous to look at. It's funny. And in the end, you can follow it and you wind up rooting for everybody to get what they want. And unlike most of the time when that can feel really you know, ridiculous or if you're real cynical and jaded, you go, ah, nobody ever gets all of what they want and stuff. Well, you know what? Sometimes it's nice to see that again. And I, I like almost everything about this. And I surprised myself with that because I went into this not knowing anything about it, not knowing what I was getting into. And literally 10 minutes into it, I said to myself, what is Anna making me watch? (laughs) And then I just, I just went with it and I really had a good time with this. I think this is a must see for everyone. Maybe not this version of it. If you're a little older, maybe you like the BBC one that we sort of referenced or something, but I do think this is a story like you said that everyone should see. There should be a telling of it in your generation. It's a fabulous story and Annie, you nailed it. It's the skeleton of every romantic comedy ever made. It's all right here. So go and watch it. You'll you will enjoy it, folks, I promise. Extra large popcorn from me as well. So a couple of a big, uh, you know, fun rides we've had here with the rom-com stuff, Anna, but uh, we'll get back to some more things. Got a lot of cool stuff coming up in the spring here, and then it plans on into the summer, of course. Um, more about that as we come forward. You can check out archives of our podcast. Hey, Anna and I did a lot of rom-coms back in the day when we first started this thing. Uh, you can check those in the archive section of our newly designed website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Click on movies and you'll see it all there. You can also see the link to our sister podcast, The Art of Slaying, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective, and the latest addition to our podcast universe, The Favish Factor, general film hyperbole podcast, takes the place of our old session show and uh, is a great show in its own right. Nick and Kurt doing a great job over there. So check all those out. Leave us a review on iTunes and let us know what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. We always appreciate your support. Until next time, for Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.